moodyradio.com. Today in the Word Radio is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of the Moody Bible Institute. You're listening to the Today in the Word Radio podcast. This week, we bring you five messages J. Oswald Sanders presented at MBI Missions Conference 1987. J. Oswald Sanders was General Director of Overseas Missionary Fellowship and the author of more than 40 books on the Christian life. Now, here is J. Oswald Sanders on Today in the Word Radio. I want to speak this morning about why people need the Lord. My theme is the crisis of human destiny. And I'd like you to read with me from Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Reading from verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. I suppose among evangelical Christians, the paramount uh, paramount motive for mission has been the great commission of our Lord in which he commanded us to go and make disciples of all nations. And undoubtedly that is a very great motive. But there is a prior and a more important motive than that, and it is this. The necessity for mission is inherent in the very nature of the triune God. God is a missionary-hearted God who sent his only son to be a missionary. The son voluntarily came as he was sent by the father to be a missionary, and he gave up his life for those to whom he came. The Holy Spirit came as the executor of the missionary enterprise, and he is in charge of its strategy and its tactics. And so the whole of the Trinity is involved in the missionary enterprise in whose interest we are gathered here today. And surely that is a tremendous motive. If God is like that, then surely we should share the same outlook as he does. 
He honors us by inviting us to be, to, to be fellow workers with him and to cooperate with him in reaching the uttermost parts of the earth with the gospel. The crisis of human destiny. In Psalm 73, when the psalmist Asaph was looking around him and saw the prosperity of the wicked, everything seemed to go right for them. They didn't have much trouble, whereas the righteous seemed to uh, get in constant adversity. And he wonders, what's, what's the good of it all? What's the benefit in being righteous? And he said, I had almost lost my foothold. My feet had almost slipped until I went into the sanctuary of God. There I saw their final destiny. When he got a vision of what lay ahead for the wicked, then he regained his faith. And he saw, yes, this world is not all. There is a time coming when everything is going to be straightened out. And the wicked, in their final destiny, will suffer separation from God. You know, I believe that we need to afresh go into the sanctuary, into the secret place, and see things from God's viewpoint. It's unpopular to preach today that there is such a thing as the wrath of God, a wrath against sin and a consequent judgment of those who are sinners. And it's a note that isn't very often stressed even in our evangelical circles. And yet it's so frequent in the Bible that it's strange that we lose that emphasis. I know it's unpleasant, it's terrible, but yet if it's true, we ought to be true in proclaiming it. When Moses said to God, I pray you, show me your glory. God answered him by saying, I will proclaim my name. And then he proclaimed his name. In Exodus 34 and 6, he gives a wonderful, wonderful statement of his character. He's a God who is compassionate. He's abounding in love and faithfulness. He forgives iniquity and sin and transgression. And then he adds and he will by no means clear the guilty. You have both aspects together, the wonderful compassion of God we were thinking about last night, his willingness to forgive every type of sin, his faithfulness, all these things are there, but he will not clear the guilty. Our Lord said very plainly in Luke 19.10, the object for which he came, he, I came to seek and to save the lost. And you'll notice those two words are set in apposition, save and lost. And being lost means the entire opposite of being saved. What wonderful blessings come to us through being saved, but what awful loss there is for those who are not saved. The word lost is not often in the evangelical vocabulary even. And I think that especially in connection with missions, very, uh, uh, an increasing number of people 
are of the opinion that nobody will be finally lost. Ultimately, all will be saved. God's love must triumph over his wrath. If there is such a thing as the wrath of God, then it must be temporary. And this kind of neo-universalism has been slowly seeping into our churches. I wonder whether every one of us here in this congregation this morning is really convinced that all men are lost. I don't impugn the motives of those who say that ultimately everyone will be saved. It would be lovely to think that if it were true and if the scriptures supported that idea. But I've looked into this fairly exhaustively and I can't find any scripture which unequivocally says that everyone ultimately will be saved. To clear the ground, may I say that scripture nowhere teaches or implies that the heathen are or will be lost simply because they've not heard the gospel. Millions have never heard, had the opportunity of hearing the gospel. Heathen people are lost if they are lost for exactly the same reason as you and I were lost. Why was I lost? Because I was a sinner by nature and by practice. And the heathen are sinners by nature and by practice. And Paul makes this clear. In Romans 3.23 he says, There is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He makes no distinction between those who have heard and those who have not heard. He said, all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. God has concluded all under sin. And so it means that whether we are in favored lands where we hear the gospel or whether they are in other lands where they don't have the opportunity of hearing the gospel, all men are lost. What does the word mean? Well, as I've said, it means the antithesis of being saved. Everything, every blessing that comes with salvation is lost by those who are not saved. It's the same word as is used in John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish. It's the same word. It's the same word as is used in Matthew 10:28 to destroy. It means ruin, waste, separation from God. And Jesus said, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. And there are questions that inevitably come into our minds if we're thoughtful. Are the unevangelized heathen really lost? Is there salvation for them apart from believing in Christ since they've never had the opportunity to do so? Can Christ's atonement avail for them if they are left in ignorance of it? Now I'll try to answer those questions by posing some other questions. First is this. Our Lord said, 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Was that statement absolute or was it relative? Can men come to a father of whom they have not heard? Jesus said, I tell you the truth. No one can see, can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Did Jesus have some unrevealed exceptions in his mind when he said that? Or was this an absolute statement? Are the unevangelized heathen automatically born again without their consent? What did Paul mean when reminding the Ephesians of their unregenerate days, he wrote this, remember that you were separate from Christ without hope and without God in the world without hope and without God. Is there any scriptural warrant for saying that the names of the unevangelized are automatically recorded in the book of life? This is what John wrote. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was cast into the lake of fire. If their name is automatically written in the book of life, what about free will? If that were true, wouldn't it be better to leave them in their present state lest they hear the gospel and reject it? If they're going to be saved all right, wouldn't it be better not to preach the gospel to them rather than to take it to them? When John said this, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars will be in the lake of fire. Was he deluded? Was he senile? Or was he writing by divine inspiration? What did Paul mean when he posed the four devastating questions in Romans 10? He made that wonderful statement, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then he asks these questions, how then can they call on one they have not believed in? How can they believe in one of whom they have not heard? How can they hear without someone teach, preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? Was Paul guilty of a heartless casuistry when he asked those questions? Or was he in dead earnest? What is the answer to those questions? I think those scriptures which I've read at least present to us a prima facie case for the lost state of all men without distinction. And it would appear that the sole hope of salvation for anyone is in hearing and believing in a Christ who died for them and rose again. But in any case, wherever the truth may lie, in the light of Calvary's sublime exhibition of God's love for mankind, we can be absolutely certain that God will be just and fair to every one of his creatures. That is the nature of God. 
We can fully share Abraham's conviction. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? We may not understand God's strange work of judgment because our minds are warped by sin. Sin to us doesn't seem terribly sinful, but it's terribly sinful to God. And you can only measure the sinfulness of sin by the cost to our Lord Jesus Christ of atoning for sin. If sin is so terrible that only the death of the sinless Son of God can atone for it, then sin is a terrible thing. Then there comes another question. What, what is the degree of responsibility of unevangelized people who've never heard or never had an opportunity of hearing the gospel? Doesn't their deprivation excuse them? I think it's true to say that ignorance may palliate the guilt It may also ameliorate the penalty, but it does not nullify or cancel it. And when you come to examine it, I think it's true to say that the the unevangelized people, the heathen people, are not as totally ignorant and not uh, uh, not as totally ignorant as it may appear on the surface. Their ignorance is not involuntary. When we read those verses in Romans 1, 18 to 20, Paul makes it abundantly clear. He said, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Listen, Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse." God has given to every man and woman a knowledge of right and wrong. There is a conscience, it says, their conscience bearing witness to them. They know right from wrong. I remember many years ago, a very noted missionary in Central Africa, Alexander Clark, told me that he went, he wanted to discover exactly what the heathen knew, what their sense of sin was. Did they really know right from wrong? And so he took an interpreter with him and he went to a tribe that had never had contact with white people before. The uh, chief was an intelligent man and he asked him, uh, I don't know how he put the question, but he asked the chief, in what do you think sin consists? And he said, without in any hesitation, the chief replied, sin is theft, murder, adultery, and witchcraft. Now, he had had no contact with outside people. There had been no missionary there. There was written in his heart the law of God. And that's what it says in Romans 2.15. The Gentiles show that the requirements of the law 
are written on their hearts. Even although he'd been totally segregated from outside influences, he knew uh, the greater part of the Ten Commandments that was written in his heart. And they knew what was right, they knew what was wrong, they chose the wrong. The Bible says that God has not left himself without a witness. And God has left a testimony in the world. The things which are seen reveal God's power and Godhead. Dr. Hudson Taylor said that in all, toward the end of his life, he said, in all my experience, I have never yet met a person in China who says that they have lived up to the light they already had. They've got the witness of nature. They've got the witness of tradition. In many parts of the world, there are still traditions of a God and a, a monotheistic tradition too. They've got conscience. Their conscience also bearing witness to them. And so the unevangelized heathen, if they are lost, are lost because not of ignorance, but because they have disobeyed their own conscience and they have gone against the light that God had given to them. You say, well, what is their degree of responsibility then? Is there no difference between them and us? Indeed, there is. Our Lord made that plain. In Luke 12, 18, he said, the servant who does not know what his master wants and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. Here, our Lord is making it clear that the responsibility of those who have never heard the gospel, who have never had the opportunity of receiving Christ, will be immeasurably less than that of those in privileged lands who have heard the gospel. And any punishment suffered by them would be in proportion to the degree of their moral responsibility. I think this fact makes a distinction between those who have sinned without the law, knowledge of the law, the Bible says. It's a distinction between them and those who have sinned under the law. And this provides us with some relief uh, as we think of the often misrepresented evangelical view of the lostness of the heathen. But as you examine the scriptures, it seems that there is very there's, there is no clear categorical statement that would warrant our believing that the heathen will be all be saved or that all men will be saved. Now, what then is our responsibility? Their degree of responsibility is very, very much less than ours. What is our responsibility? If what I've said is the scriptural view, we are faced in no certain uncertain terms with the crisis of the crucial. How urgent we should be to make Christ known to all without delay. We should commit ourselves to the total missionary enterprise with absolute abandon. To have the knowledge of Christ's salvation imposes upon us 
the obligation to share that knowledge. Paul had no illusion as to his responsibility. In Romans 1.14, Phillips renders this way, I feel myself under a sort of universal obligation. I owe something to all men from cultured Greek to ignorant savage. He felt his obligation and uh, he gave himself to it. I was in the Philippines many years ago when we had only shortly begun work in that country. I was up in the mountains and uh, I was in a very uh, primitive bamboo hut where one of our missionaries was living. And uh, we heard a cough outside. That's the way you knock at the door when there's no door. And uh, I looked out and there was a little old lady. She was very, very thin. She had a very off-white dress on. She had a lovely toothless grin. And she was carrying a bunch of bananas. Why, the visitor had come and the needy, needy missionary, he needed bananas. Well, it was very kind of her, but the missionary said, now that old lady was the first person in this tribe to believe on the Lord Jesus. And he said, when she was, mar- uh, was baptized, the man who was baptizing her asked her a question. He said to her, do you believe that Jesus died for you and rose again? She said, of course I do. And wouldn't I have believed sooner if you had come sooner? (laughs) My, what, what, what what a challenge. Wouldn't I have believed sooner if you had come sooner? When the missionaries went there, her heart was prepared. She'd seen all her own contemporaries die one by one without God and without hope and when the message came she was ready to receive it why had people not come before would I not have believed sooner if you had come sooner I wonder how many are saying that around the world today I had the great privilege of being in the country of Laos And we went to a tribe that had not heard the gospel before. And to me, it was a a very precious experience to see the impact of the word of God on people who had never heard the gospel. John Kuhn, the wife, the husband of Isabel Kuhn, whose books I'm sure some of you have read, was the leader of the party. And uh, there were three others. We had three bicycles between the four of us, and uh, it was rather a bumpy trip. But when we got there, a number of the people of this tribe uh, were there, and they sat down to hear the message. And I was watching to see, now, what will be the effect of God's word on these people whose minds are absolutely virgin so far as the gospel is concerned? Well, John Kuhn began to explain the, the scriptures. He had to start with God, who God is, the creation, and so on. And it went on for quite a long time. But I was very struck that every now and again, one of the men would ask a question. And one time the question was, if we believe this, will we have to give up drinking rice wine? 
Now, nobody had said anything about rice wine. Why bring that up? The law written on their hearts. He knew what happened when they drank rice wine. He knew the sin that it led to. And there in his heart, there was the conviction of sin already worked by the Holy Spirit right at that moment on the first hearing of the gospel. And when after a good long time, John had explained right through and brought them to the point of where they had to, they could make some response. One of the men said, I would like to believe. And another man said, I would like to believe. And so he took them and there carefully went through the gospel again and explained it to them. And at last we had to leave and we were just going to leave when a woman came. She said, I would like to believe too. And she believed. And there before my eyes, I saw the power of the word of God. And I also saw the fact that the law of God was written on their hearts and written on their minds. There, they were not totally, nor were they involuntarily ignorant of God. Now, the fact that we have the knowledge of salvation imposes upon us the obligation of sharing that with others. In Job chapter 31, verse 17, Job makes this tremendously challenging statement. He says, if I have eaten my morsel myself alone, then let my shoulder blade fall from my shoulder and let my arm be broken from the socket. What a statement. Here he is speaking about the wonderful hospitality of the East. And as an Oriental, Job would never have eaten himself until he had set his best, even though it was very last bite, until he'd set his best before his guest. To eat his meal alone while others were in need around him would have demeaned him as much as the other sins that he's been speaking of in that passage. And in the surrounding verses, he speaks about the crime of selfishness, the crime of dishonesty, the crimes against, imp- against purity, greed and malice and in the midst of those he puts this if I have eaten my morsel myself alone then let my shoulder blade fall from my shoulder and let my arm be broken from its socket it was the crime of the elder brother who every day sat down at his father's table groaning under the the food that was there He paid no attention to the empty chair that was there and that broke his father's heart every time he looked at it. He saw no significance in the surplus at his father's table that was taken away by the servants and given to the pigs. He never thought for a moment that he might perhaps take something to his brother in the far country, the crime of selfishness. We should ask ourselves this conscience-stirring question. Am I eating my morsel, myself, alone? Am I enjoying all the spiritual blessings and the temporal blessings that God has given me while half the world is famishing 
for the word of God. Jesus did not eat his morsel himself alone. How easy it would have been for him to remain in high heaven. But instead of that, he divested himself of his royal robes. He left heaven and came down, littering space as he came with the glories he laid aside. And he came to earth and trod the lonely path in order that his broken body might provide bread for the salvation of the world? Are we going to eat our morsel ourselves alone? Paul said, I have always had the ambition to preach Christ where he has not been named. I don't want to build on another man's foundation. But you know, the tragedy is that most people don't share Paul's ambition. They share the ambition to stay at home. I was struck and depressed to read an article by Dr. Robertson McQuilkin of Columbia Bible College, who said that in the world today, uh, in America today, there are 100,000 Bible College students. He said, of those who graduate, of the half of those who graduate, only 3.7 reach the mission field. Why don't we share Paul's ambition? I have always had the ambition, Paul says, to preach Christ where he has not been known. I do trust that as we think over this subject, the crisis of human destiny, the fact that we have in our hands the word of life, the bread of life, truth that can change the destiny of a soul from hell to heaven. I do trust that we will ask ourselves the question, Lord, I don't want to eat my morsel myself alone. I want to share it with those who have never heard. Here I am. Send me. You've been listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast and a message J. Oswald Sanders presented at MBI Missions Conference 1987. J. Oswald Sanders was General Director of Overseas Missionary Fellowship and the author of more than 40 books on the Christian life. Audio copies of this and many other messages from the podcast are available at moodyaudio.com. Today in the Word radio is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of the Moody Bible Institute.